we do see that there is an epidemic of ADHD right now. And uh, anytime there's an epidemic, it's always going to be environmental because genetics don't have epidemics. But what we're seeing is that as kids are more indoors and they have less movement and less exposure to nature, the ADHD symptoms are going up. Hello and welcome to the Innovative Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Isolde Trachtenberg. On the show, I interview peak performing innovators in the creative, social impact, and earth conservation spaces. I also bring you ideas and techniques that you can grab and use to set goals, create, and unlock your potential for changing yourself and the world. And now let's get to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Innovative Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Isolde Trachtenberg. Thank you for taking the time to be here. And I am thrilled also and thanking my guest this week. She's back on the show. Avigail Gimpel is a mother of six amazing kids, most of whom are diagnosed with ADHD. She's a special educator, a college lecturer, and an author. When she saw how little understanding there was of root causes of ADHD symptoms and quality intervention programs, she got to work. The result is two highly informative books. The first, the one that we talked about last time, is Hyperhealing. That's a guide to understanding why a child is struggling and a full intervention plan. Book two is Hyperhealing, Show Me the Science. I love the title. That book empowers parents to make the best intervention decisions for their children. Avigail is a tireless advocate for children, a special ed teacher, and a trainer and coach for teachers on ADHD. I am so glad to welcome you back. Thank you so much for being here, Avigail. Thank you and welcome. Hey, Zelda, it is always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for having me. It's it's my pleasure entirely. We were just we were just chatting about something that I can't wait to talk to you about about doing the the fact that you did this training in Kenya and the fact that the teachers there did things very differently. They they took in the information, they took these pauses, and you you said, oh, wait, what's going on? And it tells us something about how we as a culture, a global culture, people do things very differently. And so when we are talking about something like ADHD, I, I kind of want to know right off your opinion, are there cultures that look at ADHD as just another way of being as opposed to something that is a disorder? Well, I have not bumped into a culture like that right now. I know that there were many cultures, France, for example, that in the past, let's say the past 30 years or so, they did not see ADHD as a disorder and they dealt with it very much more in a holistic way where mm -hmm. they were looking at a child being stressed by something, looking for learning disabilities, emotional uh emotional challenges, and they were not racing to diagnose and say that there was some problem with the child themselves. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, our Western society has really influenced most of the world. And you were mentioning this course that I gave in Kenya, and, and there where you would you would think that there was more of a holistic uh, approach to it. And, and there's a lot more outdoor play, and kids are much more active uh, in general there they they were very surprised when i talked about adhd and and because they saw it as something dangerous and horrific and when i explained it from our perspective it it brought their image down 
which really surprised me. I learned so much from this training. It was, I think I probably learned more than they did. But the, the, yeah, so I, I unfortunately do not see societies today that just see it as a variant of childhood. Mm, it's too bad. My husband, I talk about this with, uh, he knows that I talk about it, so I'm good with it. He has ADHD and he got diagnosed later in life. So when we're talking about the difference between children and adults and also globally, how how do we how do we how do we best treat it in your opinion what are your thoughts on on medications things like that what what can we be doing to support our our spouses our children who have ADHD or I don't even know if have ADHD is the right way of saying it but who who have been diagnosed or even undiagnosed how do we how do we help them what do we need to do to help them well, first of all, I love that you talk about your husband because I talk about my ADHD husband all the time. So we have a real <laughs> meeting of the minds there. Yeah. <laughs> and, they're, and they're amazing, aren't they? They are um, for sure. Yeah. So I, I think that we're we're seeing it completely the wrong way. And, and that's really what got me working on this. Uh, it, we're seeing it as this person is disordered and therefore how do we treat? What we're not doing is taking any kind of journey journey of curiosity. We're not looking at the person and saying, wow, this person is struggling. I wonder why. Mm. It used to be that when we went for a doctor's visit, the doctor would ask a lot of questions and not already know what was wrong with us and already have the treatment plan as we walked through the door. Mm. That's pretty much gone also, unfortunately. But uh, with ADHD, we, we already called it a disorder before we even looked into why the person was struggling. And there's so many different reasons why a person's struggling. And if we get to those root causes, then there, there's a different treatment plan for every single person. So I would not, I, I would take the the last D out of the ADHD because mm -hmm. that disorder really um, is, is very, very uh, isolating. And it really, it, it, it kind of pins the problem on the person, you are disordered. There is a problem with you. And most often the problem is a clash between a healthy person and that person's environment. Now that doesn't mean, and I'm, so, I'm saying this as a mother of children with ADHD, that does not mean that, that kids who are diagnosed with ADHD are being beaten or, or all sorts of other terrible things in their environment. Mm -hmm. It could also be a clash of the way they understand uh, emotionally, the way they synthesize emotionally, the way they interact with the world and their parents or teachers not really understanding their language or having, for another example, a, a gut disorder, meaning there's something physiologically wrong with the child, but the environment is not sensitive to that, not in a negative way, but doesn't realize that that's what's going on and therefore doesn't pick it up and the child's eating the worst foods for them, exacerbating symptoms, and, and therefore we're seeing all these things in front of us. The very worst way to treat ADHD is to look at a list of symptoms, check a couple of boxes, and then medicate. I love that you said that because uh, I, I love that you said every, everything you just said because I'm, I've been doing a lot of reading on gut disorder or gut flora being being such a contributor to the way we live, whether challenged or not challenged, doesn't matter. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how how that could be amended? How what what would we need to do 
to build that connection and understand the connection between your your gut flora and the way you behave and the way you, your brain works and the way you synthesize information and also how we would treat something like that. So we used to think that the brain really dictated everything that was going on in our body, kind of like our body just kind of carried around our brain mm -hmm. and our brain did all the work and our body was there to get it from place to place. Um, and we know very uh, obviously, I'm simplifying here, but we we're finding out that it's the very opposite, that our gut is our second brain. There's a great book mm. about that called The Second Brain. But it's the, the point is that whereas we had thought that that all these chemicals, we talk about dopamine a lot and norepinephrine with ADHD. And the truth of the matter is that many of our chemicals in our brain are actually created by our gut. Our gut is a factory that works together with our brain. And if our gut is not working properly, we're going to land up with all sorts of symptoms like depression, ADHD, anxiety, uh, because the, the gut is not producing the chemicals we need for our brain to function optimally. So we're going to see, so first of all, we're going to see these psychiatric conditions mm -hmm. or, or symptoms perhaps. And we're also going to see other symptoms that are physiological like asthma and allergies and uh, skin rashes and kids who are not getting a good solid night's sleep and kids who have headaches and stomach aches or adults, by the way, these are not, it's it's not normal for us to be walking around in chronic pain all the time. It's not normal for us to be needing to take a chronic medication. And uh, it, very often the problem begins in the gut. And the way we treat it is by cleaning the gut. I actually offer a, a free download on my website, hyperhealing.org with a the full diet. I call it the 30 day challenge where we get, back into our gut, we figure out what's wrong. We eliminate certain foods. I'll give you a quick uh, uh, review of that. I, I start by eliminating gluten, dairy, and uh, sugars and food additives. The food additives actually act just, they, they cause as much destruction in our gut as antibiotics do, but they don't save our lives. They just destroy. Um, so food colorings and things like that. We're gonna take those out. And we're going to switch over to a very, very plant-based diet. We're going to be able to recognize the food that we're eating. And it's not going to come from those middle aisles in the supermarket in a bag that could sit on a shelf for 200 years and, you know, a bomb going off on the supermarket and still survive. Wow. Um, and yeah, we're going to add probiotics. We're going to add a lot of vitamin D. And then we're going to look at the person and see what else is going on. If this person's constipated, that is leaving toxins in the person's body. And therefore, we're going to updose on magnesium. There's so much to do. And what's remarkable about this is that kids who have a terrible runny nose for years, you clean up their gut, their runny nose stops. Hmm. And I, I always put the full family on the 30-day challenge because it doesn't work uh, with just one child doing it at all. And uh, what I get often is from the parents responses like, wow, I didn't, I didn't think I knew how to sit on the couch and read a book anymore. And it's back. I can focus. Uh, so yeah, it, it is remarkable. And it's one of my big go-to treatments. Wow. I think that's, I, personally, I think that's great. I'm actually going through a prebiotic and probiotic and adaptogen sort of 
cleanse right now and it and I can already see the difference and I love that you're talking about this and yet this is something that when we're talking about it for for the developed world is different but like going back to this notion of being in Kenya how do we individualize it to places where some of this is not available and yet the diet might not be conducive to the kind of cleansing that you're talking about well the the diet can actually be adapted anywhere Okay. Uh, that's easy. What I ran into in Kenya was the uh, the clash between children and adults. They have a very authoritarian system there. Where when I was, I I always start with the teachers and therapists, and I had a pastor in the group as well. What an amazing group of people! And uh, I start with them. I ask them how they were cursed, meaning what they were told as a child that they bought into and they believe mm -hmm. that to be true themselves the rest of their lives mm -hmm. and the things that they told me that they were just an outpouring of i was told i was stupid i was i was shamed in public i was uh you know the the amount of of very aggressive communication that 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 seems to be part of certain parts of that culture is also creating a lot of these adhd symptoms because it, it really, in, in some cases, uh, very much abusive communication with a child. Obviously, that's not Kenyan society, but that was what I what I met was something very authoritarian and not a play and and not um, nurturing to the child being able to see. Okay, I have a challenge. How do I work on it? There's there's not looking at the child's needs. Um, so obviously in most cases, it's not abusive. What, what some of the people in the group were reporting would definitely be considered, uh, borderline abusive and, and not everyone suffers from that. But, but that I think was, was a main issue that I had to focus on with that group. It's fascinating. And also uh, it's concerning to me because we, uh, we live in this we live in in this world, you know, obviously global village. And yet the way children are raised and full disclosure, I don't have any children. So I'm talking out of my hat at least a little bit here. But we raise children very, very differently. Right. There are places where and certainly, you know, pre-industrial revolution during the agricultural years, children were expected to get up in the morning and go work the farm, right? Go work. That's, that was part of the child's life. And so I don't know, I don't, we don't have any numbers. I assume we, you might know more about this than I do as far as levels of, of this kind of attention deficit and hyperactivity a hundred years ago versus today. And also the levels of kids, you said that they don't, that they didn't think in Kenya uh, about these kids as having challenges. They thought of it as something really horrific and bad. Is there a way to know, and if so, what is it, how much that motion that you were talking about, the kids getting up and working on the farm, kids running around more, how much that actually affects ADHD or, or AD, maybe we should just start calling, start calling it ADH. How does it affect ADH? How does it affect it? And, and is there a way to modify maybe the activity to keep helping children who exhibit these kinds of symptoms? So that's a great question. I do not have exact, obviously I don't have numbers from a hundred years ago because those sure. numbers don't exist, but we do see that there is an ep epidemic 
of ADHD right now. And uh, that is anytime there's an epidemic, it's always going to be environmental because gen genetics don't have epidemics. Um, but what we're seeing is that as kids are more indoors and less and they have less movement and less, less exposure to nature, the ADHD symptoms are going up. There are other factors as well. Kids are being exposed to uh, a soup of chemicals that that we certainly were not exposed to as, when we were younger. And uh, so that definitely has an effect on what's going on with the kids. And uh, also screens were introduced between our generation and, and this generation. So that doesn't help at all. But what I can say is that it was something I advocate for very strongly is kids must get outside. And what we do is I, I can't remember the name of the pediatrician, but she said that when she uh, diagnoses ADHD, when, when she writes her prescription, the only prescription she writes is children, this child needs to get outside. And she's actually developed an amazing program where every week, these kids that are diagnosed with ADHD go on a field trip with a parent. And uh, she's seen remarkable results. And I know that we were just coming out of the summer that in my family, summer vacation means getting out in nature and getting on the water, hiking, being active. And it's a different child um, in that kind of environment. And I know that kids that have to have responsibilities and are expected to be responsible uh, do much better than other kids but you also have you know if, if we're going back those hundred years where kids had to get up in the morning they had to walk far distances so they were getting exercise they had responsibility they also were you know so so that's the positive part on the negative side they weren't noticed as much so whereas today we would say the child's struggling then they probably would have said the child's lazy or just useless to me. And, and that would be much more of, of perhaps what I was hearing from my, my Kenyan participants, that, that they're still right there. And uh, we've moved on in terms of our seeing the child, but unfortunately we have bubble wrapped our children and they are paying a crazy price for it. What does that mean? We have bubble wrapped our, I love the phrase, but I'd love it if you'd explain what it means. What does it mean? We have bubble wrapped our children. Well, we don't want anything to be too difficult for them. We don't ah, want to over-discipline. Mm -hmm. We don't want to make them feel bad. We want everybody to win. And my my daughter was in a soccer league. My, my youngest daughter was in a soccer league this year. And, uh, you know, and, and they give everyone a trophy at the end. And, and mm -hmm. she's kind of looking at it like, okay, so who won? You know, <laughs> but why are we all getting trophies? We can't all be the best or no one's the best. Uh, but we, we, we suddenly decided to see childhood as very um what's the word i'm looking for it very um um in a week that that these children are are not they're 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 not resilient we we mustn't upset them we mustn't give them too much competition we must not ask too much of them and and if they want something we must provide that for them because they should have no wants and what we've landed up doing is creating a generation of very scared, very fragile, and very spoiled kids. And, and we've done them no service. And uh, that, that's what I'm talking about with the bubble wrapping, that we, we have no faith in kids. When I see a kid, I see an amazing child who's resilient, who's able to 
to you know get a, a little knock on the on the chin and get up and and learn from it but that's not what society is telling us society is saying treat the children gently and carefully and bubble wrap them so that they never feel any pain wow okay wow all right so I'm taking a second, my anticipatory air that I was telling you about before we recorded. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you're, if you're a first time listener, what I do is I synthesize and I listen to what the person I'm speaking with has said, and I kind of need to take a little, a little, a little step and, and, and breathe for a minute and think about what it is, because this is so like it's it, what you just said Abigail is pretty controversial right let's just let's just say that it's pretty controversial because uh you know i can tell you i know parents who would go wait a minute i'm i'm just doing the best for my child what are you talking about this is not i'm not what do you mean i'm doing my child a disservice that's not fair i'm doing the best i can what do you say to parents who would come back with something i, I understand i sound defensive right now and again i don't have children so it, i talking out of my hat but i know people who would look at you and go wait a minute i've been doing the best for my child because i can do the best for my child i can give my child everything they want so why shouldn't i and I would agree with that parent. I would say you are doing the best you can according to the instructions you're being given. Mm -hmm. Often we're given the wrong instructions. And then we find it's like, for example, you know, you have pharmaceutical drugs that are prescribed by doctors for many years. Like, like for example, thalidomide was given to pregnant women for many years. And then it turns out that it causes major harm to the babies being born is mm -hmm. sterility in some cases all sorts of awful harms that happen with that and and did would i look at the doctor and say you evil person look how many babies you've harmed of course i wouldn't i'd say you did the best you could with the instructions and the tools you were given but the instructions were wrong mm. and the tool was harmful so the instructions are wrong children okay. are not princes and princesses and we are not meant to put them in the center and dote on them and make sure that they are never unhappy. Because if we really look at our lives, obviously we're not creating unhappiness. We want our children to be happy. We want them to flourish and succeed. You cannot create flourishing and succeeding. Uh, they have to choose to do that. And uh, I know that, that for myself, the challenges I went through were what brought to growth. That's why I'm the person I am today. That's why I make decisions I made. I just wrote two books because I struggled hard trying to figure out how to help my children do well in an environment where they were being told they were disordered. And that was miserable. It was sad. I was defensive. I, I felt attacked. And instead of crying, I said, well, this is really rough. What do we do about this? That's what I want for my kids. So I'm here for them. I'm not sending them out on the street to fend for themselves. And I give them all the love and the support that I can. Everything that I have in my heart is theirs. And I also want them to be responsible. And I also want them to have chores. And I also want them to not get everything they need. Maybe they should save up their money and buy it for themselves if it's that important to them. Because that brings to growth. If our goal is to raise good human beings who are kind, who are generous, who are responsible and good citizens, then we have to stop what we're doing. We have to stop this spoiling and stop treating them 
like they're a fragile piece of glass because they're not. And yes, they are today. Everyone's fragile. Trigger warnings for crying out loud. What are we warning them from? Let them hear information and think and feel and make good decisions and say, I'm hurting. That would be wonderful. That would be resilient. We're not doing that. Okay, so how do we? If you find yourself in the position of, let's say, you know, you're obviously you're a parent, but the general you, you're a parent, you have a child, and you followed the wrong instructions for years, and your child is 11 or 12 or even 14, whatever, and you go, oh, I need to change some things. How would you do that? What, what would the first steps be? Because you said yourself, the child, it, it, it's what the child is doing, what the child is doing today. And that's how it is. But then what if you as a parent then go, how can I modify what I've done to help my child get more resilient, to become more independent to, and it's not about not giving them what they need. It's, uh, it's, it's giving them, if, if there are challenges like, oh, I want this pair of boots. I don't know. I'm not sure what, what kids want nowadays, but what if I want this pair of boots? Okay, save your money and you can, you know, you can maybe afford that pair of boots as opposed to just buying the pair of boots for the child. How do we do that? How do we start? Well, we start with ourselves as with everything. We start by number one, saying, I'm a good parent. I am loving. I am doing the best I can. Pat yourself on the back first, do that. And then next, stop being terrified of your kids. Everybody is scared of their kids today because, they, they, you know, the, you know, if, if I don't get what I want, I'm going to be have a tantrum. We, we're essentially we're creating tyrants because when a kid could threaten their parents and, and demand everything that they really are tyrants and tyrants and and we're constantly having hostage taking situations. Uh, so what we need to do is go back to what's good for a child to have is it good for a child, for example, to have an open phone. Uh, you know, device or gaming devices that they can have 24 hours a day with no limits. And that's what many children have today. So we have to go back and say, don't go with what everyone's doing. Ask a question. Is my is that good for my child? Is my child flourishing and happy with that kind of situation? If not, I'm the adult. So right now I'm going to say now we're putting limits on the phones on the content and on the amount of time you're going to be using that phone. And you're going to be really upset right now. You're going to be furious with me and you're going to tantrum for about two weeks and make everyone's life miserable. But then you know what's going to happen on the other side of those two weeks? You're going to go out to the park and you're going to find friends and you're going to play football and you're going to become sociable and you're going to be so much more happy. And uh, that's what we're saying. We're putting limits on things that we know in our gut are probably not good for our child, but we haven't been able to be strong enough to say that's not good for you. And then, so that's what we're doing. We're taking back our role as leader in the house. And, and the more leadership a child has, the more strong and resilient the child could be because they know that they could now go ahead and make mistakes and have a bad day and there's someone going to be there to support them and and emotionally give them what they need because we are never ever going to to limit the amount of love that we have for our child. 
we are just going to put limits on the the things that they want and they think that they need so that they can grow up and earn and and uh and be much healthier that that's where we're going I love the notion of that. I feel like that it is, you know, I like that you said you go to yourself first because there's a psychology at work here getting over, you know, a parent would have to get over feeling like they were a bad parent and a parent would have to get over or work through feeling like they're, they're that they're, you know, hurting their child during this, as you said, two weeks of tantruming. Uh, th that's really, that's hard because you have to sort of steal yourself. Do you have any advice on how a parent or a caregiver could steal themselves to, to, to deal with what would probably be a lot of guilt tripping and a lot of crying? Well, actually I start my book with three chapters just for the parents because the, we have to get our own voices in order uh, for it. Like, let's say, you know, we've been deprived as a child or we've been overspoiled as a child or those voices I was talking about when, when we discussed that my Kenyan group that, you know, that the curses that we had, you're lazy, you're stupid, you're whatever it is that we were told. And now we're trying to compensate as parents and trying to reach some kind of unattainable perfection. And uh, so we have to start by saying there is no thing, such thing as, as uh, perfection, and we are on a daily journey. So don't be panicked by today, because the journey lasts a whole lot longer than today. Once you've decided to be a parent, I, I once heard someone say, becoming a parent is like putting a tattoo on your face. Like, it, there's no getting rid of it. Uh, <laughs> so this is forever. So breathe deeply and say, today is just one tiny part of the journey. It's okay if today's not comfortable, as long as the goal I've set is a compassionate, loving, kind goal for my child. Today, it's okay. So I'm going to be there to support my child. I'm going to make sure that I have other activities I'm going to take my kids outside. I'm going to like when I say, OK, no screens today, then I had better take the kids to the swimming pool and go out on a hike or or have other things available so that they can get used to this new system. And uh, that clarity as well as preparation is helpful. But besides for that, we have to strengthen ourselves. And I and I recommend that you have a partner, maybe going through this with another parent. Um, so that you and that other parent can strengthen each other or with the spouse. And, you know, at the end of this exhausting day where your kid's been yelling and screaming and telling you how awful you are, even though this is really for the best for them, it, it's like the time that I, that my, my daughter had a terrible infection in her mouth. Actually, we were living in Russia then. And, uh, they, they asked me to hold her down so that they could look at what was going on in her mouth. And she's looking at me in horror that I'm holding her while someone's hurting her. It was it was a horrible situation. Mm. But then but I had to strengthen myself and say, having compassion right now is going to lead this child to the emergency room because we have to get this infection out of her mouth now. And uh, and that's what it is. We have to strengthen ourselves and know that what we're doing right now is best and put mantras up and uh, say sentences to ourselves and go out with friends in the evening so that we strengthen ourselves 
but we, we really have to carry on because the minute we break, our children know that we will always break. Uh, one mother once said to me, I, I am very firm with the house rules unless my kid starts to whine. I'm like, oh, so basically what you've done is you've trained your child to whine because wow. that's your child's key to success. Right. So you've trained your child to be this awful kid that no one wants to hang out with because he's whining all the time. And you did that. Don't do that. Be nice to your kids. Wow. So that's so interesting because there again, there's a psychology at work. I'm great at this. I, I enforce the rules unless somebody goes, but mom, and then and then I, I cave. Right. So so that kind of training uh, for, for the parent, how, how do they learn not to do that? Like so what has to happen inside themselves? Right. So, so we do a couple of things. First of all, first we identify the curses, what you believe about yourself. That's just not true. And we really work that through. Mm -hmm. And then we work on the triggers. What triggers you? Basically we have this, this, this habit loop where we are triggered by something. And this is not just for parents, this is for all of us. Uh, we are triggered by something and that something is so uncomfortable that we immediately respond in order to stop whatever's happening. Mm -hmm. So I'm being yelled at, yelled at in, in the parking lot of the supermarket and I need this to stop right now. So instead of being an adult and saying, wow, that person's got a lot of their own voices or this is unjustified i you know i just need to eliminate myself from the situation that's what we would do if we were thinking but i've been triggered just now because someone's been aggressive to me and that brings me back to the other many many aggressions of my life that i've been powerless in even though right now i'm not powerless i'm powerful and i can respond great but I'm now in this emotional habit loop where I'll either yell back or uh, turn to somebody else who's in the parking lot and 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 say something awful to them about the person who's yelling at me, you know, and and that and that would be a gentle response. So basically, what we're doing is we're just trying to shut down that situation so that the person stops yelling and humiliating me. But what we're trying to do is identify the trigger with the adult. And with kids, I do this with kids all the time with great success. You identify the trigger and then you look at what your steps are. What, why does this bother you? Where does it connect to? Because if it has a long tail, you really have to cut it off and say, okay, that was then. This is a difference, a new situation, which, which takes some time. I'm saying it quickly, but it really is, is a wonderful and, uh, a slightly time-consuming process, but it's something we all need to go through. And then we look at the the uh, response that we have now to shut down the situation. And then we then we have to do like a guided discovery analysis of what is a better response, and then practice that over and over again um, together, either with me or with the or with uh, or with a, a family member. I like to train family members to work with each other so that they can help each other when they've been triggered to be able to verbalize that I've been triggered, I've been triggered right now. Oh my God, I'm feeling like, and then they would say what they're feeling like a physical feeling, an emotional feeling. I'm feeling like I'm drowning. I'm feeling like I'm, I'm attacked from all sides. I'm feeling desperate. 
And then, okay, what was the better response we chose? Because our little children lands up triggering us and we give them so much power because they trigger that they'll say a nasty thing which little kids will do sometimes and that's age appropriate and okay obviously we don't want to encourage that but it's not it's not a terrible thing if a child opens their mouth and says i hate you mommy like that's okay but if we hear that and that is something that brings us back to all sorts of terrible experiences we're not looking at our child anymore. We're looking at all the other people who have insulted us. And then we respond in a crazy, inappropriate, unkind, and unloving way. And our kids, again, we have to be kind to our children and ourselves. I heard it said recently, uh, and and I love this. Uh, I, I read it somewhere. I think that as soon as you respond in anger, you're no longer trying to resolve the situation. You're just arguing to be right. And I think that that's so much of this that, that if you're triggered, you're no longer trying to work through whatever's going on. You're just trying to sort of assuage the storm raging inside your own head. And that is. That is very powerful. And as 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 parents to children, we have a lot more say in how they live their lives. But as they get older, we don't, you know, as they gain more independence, we don't have a lot of say and they can say things that are just incredibly hurtful. Uh, and I can I could talk about stuff in my own family, but I won't I won't do a therapy session with you, Avigail. But but there is, you know, as kids get older, they can say things that are deliberately very painful for the parent to hear. And so is, is is there a support system that you recommend? I understand you said work with another parent, but sometimes it goes beyond that. Sometimes the things that children say as they get older, especially when they know some of the buttons to push, uh, will push those buttons, will stomp on those buttons deliberately. And then you have to kind of deal with feeling hurt and still be able to respond instead of being reactive. What are your thoughts on that? I actually just this week put out a YouTube video that's called the four reason our teens hate us mm. and what to do about it. Because one of the reasons our teens hate us and, and they really do. And uh, I mean, obviously they don't really, they really need us and they, they need us to be there for them, but they have a lot of anger and animosity very often toward their parents. And the number one reason is that we haven't resolved our voices and we're dumping our voices all over them. We're not seeing them, we're seeing ourselves. And when our teenager does something that we were told we were losers when we were younger, well, we did that, we're looking at the kid and being like, you're a loser. And it's like, no, no, that's not a loser. That's a teenager. And, and that's sometimes teenagers have bad or no judgment. And, uh, and if we carry that on, then the raising of teenagers is excruciating mm. and it's anyway it's heartbreaking and but it's also exhilarating like if we can get past these four things that we are constantly triggering our teenagers with then then yes the teenagers will say things to hurt us but they're not trying to hurt us they're trying to form their own identity they're trying to figure out who they are where they want to go what they love what they hate all that stuff and they're bouncing it off of us. They're trying, they're trying all sorts of things on for size. And if we realize that we're in a role 
because we've really worked on our voices and we say, this is not personal. Obviously there, there have to be some guidelines. Like there are certain things that, that even teenagers should not be allowed to say to their parents, because again, we are, that's the bubble wrap. We're not allowing kids to do things that are bad for them. And, uh, and therefore I have to say, no, if you, if you're, if you're speaking to me that way, let's wait until you stop speaking to me that way, but I'm totally here for you. I'm crazy about you. I love you. I think you're wonderful. Uh, your choices are a little different and strange and surprising and, and even disappointing. But uh, it, we have to clear those, our own voices, because when kids are little, we might get away with it. We might yell a little bit too much because we're yelling at ourselves and, and this little person's getting in the way. Um, but as they get older, not only is our discipline really insufficient, and, and we know at that time that we can no longer really properly discipline them. They're a head taller than us. They're, they're big and muscular, and they could just jump in the car and drive away if they feel like it. Uh, so we, we really have to get this part right before they become teenagers. And also we, we have to develop a sense of humor. If we take everything our teenagers say personally, when they really have half a brain right now, like the, the second half of their brain is still in development. Like if you can take what your teenagers are saying seriously, and it is hurtful, but be hurt and then be like, oh, it's a teenager. They're, they're not fully developed yet and they don't mean to hurt me. And this is actually going to grow out of this. I'm okay. And, and make a joke. It's okay. You need a sense of humor here. Getting the support. Um, yeah. I, I think that either having someone work with you or really creating a friend group is, is the best way to go. I, you, you could definitely do therapy for this. And, and if therapy is going to help you stop dumping your old stories, voices, and curses on your teenager. It's worth every single penny. And I say, go for it. I'm a big advocate for therapy anyway. And, and it's so just because some, you know, we, we are sort of not given those tools and it's not anybody's fault. It's not your parents' fault. If you weren't given the tools of self-reflection and self-evaluation, if you don't have those skills, it's not some, it's not somebody's fault that you don't have them. It's, we're all, as you said, we're all sort of talking about our own stories in our own heads. And so when we grow, so many people like you and I were just talking about this notion of we don't know what the data was 100 years ago. We don't have it. So many, many people have grown through childhood, teenagehood into adulthood who have what we're calling ADH or ADD, right? Or AD, I guess, attention deficit issues. I don't <laughs> even know how to- shortening it. I know, eventually it's just gonna be like a little finger sign like kids do for each other. Um, <laughs> yeah, th that's the thing though. Like we have adults walking around who are either undiagnosed or who've thought, like there's that one book that's called something like, you mean I'm not lazy, crazy or stupid because there are lots of adults walking around who've had some of these issues and have never had any tools because no one ever thought, oh, you're having these challenges. Let's see how we can meet those and address them. So you go, you're an adult. What is your what is your guidance for someone who's gone all the way through into being an adult with some of these issues? What do they do to help themselves? 
Yeah. So definitely requires help. I I had a a sweet interaction with, with my oldest daughter, who's now an adult, she's 23. And, uh, she, she invited me up to sit in her room while she cleaned. And, uh, I said, sure, why not? And, uh, you know, it's a time your 23 year old doesn't often invite you for like a, a long, deep conversation. That's really fun. And I sat on her bed and she actually said to me, well, what we're doing right now is you're being my body double. And I'm like, alrighty then, what, what is that? What's a body double, hon? And she says, well, you know, people like me, she's definitely ADHD. And, and the, one of those causes of ADHD is the instant gratification personality. You want everything here and now and fun and interesting and dangerous and all that. And a lot of the adults walking around have that healthy personality, but it's been pathologized for so many years that they're really ashamed to face it and look at what they actually need. And so Hmm. what she was saying to me is what I need as a healthy person who gets distracted really fast because I'll pick up something I'm cleaning and be like, oh, this is interesting and get lost in that or, you know, and, and, and not be able to get through my chore. But if I have someone sitting here talking to me and just keeping me company, I can get through it in no time. And most of these people are very, very uh, capable. And they could really get anything done. And if we can get, especially for the adults who are, who are not diagnosed till later, they're carrying around a lot of ideas about themselves. Like, like you were saying that book, what, I'm not lazy? No, you're not lazy. You have a hard time getting through tasks because you are always looking for novelty. Everything interests you. And that's great. Except that you're missing a habit called getting through things that are less interesting to you. So if we break it down to its smaller parts and say, you're healthy, these are your challenges, and these are the amazing things about you, then it becomes very, very doable. Getting the help, I I, I think that... that um, I offer the kind of help that is not, I don't see out there. And, and it's sad for me because a lot of these people, when they go for help, they're going to land up being medicated and going for therapy. And the therapy is not going to be focusing on what skills they're missing and how to understand what they're strong at, what they're weak at and, and building habits, just the basic building blocks that they're missing. It's going to go into the pain that all those things that they're missing has caused them. But what about empowering them and helping them get to a place where they can accomplish these things without feeling bad for themselves? So I, I feel like that's very much missing from the therapeutic process, specifically for people who are diagnosed with ADHD later in life. And I hope that that enough people could really step up to the plate and help these people in a way that they're giving them skills and tools. I have so many questions about this and it's and and I want to I want to ask them all so that we be sure to talk about them all. You've mentioned a couple of different root causes of ADHD and I definitely want to see what some of the other things that you you talked about are but something you just said really struck a chord with me as the spouse of someone who has ADD or ADHD or ADH whatever however we're referring to it right now. Um the the thing the thing that that is at issue for me and this is a personal thing because my husband and i have been together 30 years so i've had a lot of experience with this as the spouse of someone who has add as a mom of, of children who have add your daughter asked you to come in and keep her company 
The thing is, for you, that's great. You seem very willing and able to take the time to come in and, and spend the time your daughter needed, as she, as she put it, for you to be a body double. But what about someone who's like, wait, I, I don't have the kind of time and energy it will take to sit with you. Right now, I'm in the middle of cooking dinner or what, what whatever the thing is that this person, or I have a deadline at work, whatever this thing that might be happening is. How do you navigate the 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 decision-making process as as the partner of someone or as the parent of someone who has these issues when you have your own life to live too? Yeah, and that's really a, a question about, in general, balancing with the people you love around you, with the spouse, with children, uh, that you have to figure out how to have your needs met and their needs met. So I'm saying someone with uh, instant gratification personality would do great with a body double. And you're saying, well, I can't just sit around and body double my husband all the time. Like he has to figure it out himself. And you're right, except that you do a lot for your husband. And I know you do. So let's say you figure out a way so that your schedules can work with each other so that he's taking on some of your responsibilities and stuff that that you might not like doing like i i recently passed shopping over to to my husband uh, which i i might take it back i'm not sure but uh that that's a, that was something that like i got busy with something else and i said okay my plate has overflown can you please take care of that once a week grocery shopping but then I can also find the time, let's say he needed a body double, I could find the time when it's convenient for me to do that. So my daughter asked me to do it on a Saturday night late, that's fine. So so I can figure out a way to put that in my schedule. We stop our lives to do a lot of things for our children. We take them to all sorts of extracurricular activities in the afternoon and we sit and do homework with them. We spend hours cooking, all that stuff. So maybe we need to balance it better. Maybe having a more simple dinner or one less activity in the afternoon. And then I use that time to strengthen her by being her body double, by by sitting with her. So it's really just a matter of balance and balance is is, is always challenging, but uh, I don't have a perfect answer, answer for that, except that we do things for the people we love while we also protect our own boundaries. And I think that what you, the last thing you said is so important. It's about setting and protecting boundaries. And I think every, you know, Rich and I, my husband and I call it shiny pretty things syndrome because he gets, he gets distracted like crazy. He'll be cleaning and, oh, he'll find this, this drawing that he did 16 years ago. Oh, look at this. And then of course he has to start playing with it and maybe draws on it or more, you know, all of this stuff happens. And for him, he, he goes down that rabbit hole very easily, but actually he was just trying to find the la that pair of socks so we could go out to dinner. Right. So, so that kind of thing happens and it's, it does take a certain amount of patience on the part of the spouse to sort of be able to go, okay, this is where we are. Do you have recommendations on language that people can use in, you called it, you, you know, I, I asked people to give me the questions they're going to ask so that I can think about and do research and stuff. And you said something that I thought was really interesting. You were talking about couplehood and how to make the relationship stronger. And I would love it if you would talk a little bit about how that could happen not just in one person has this diagnosis or has these symptoms and the other person doesn't but what happens if both people in the partnership have that diagnosis those are my most challenging couples 
because I work with couples and when both of them have a diagnosis, it's a little more challenging because the truth is, again, we're calling it a diagnosis and, and it is a diagnosis that, that those are the facts for today. But what we're seeing is a person who's dynamic, who has the, the what do you call it? Sparkly, shiny things. Shiny, shiny, pretty thing syndrome. Yes. Shiny, pretty. <laughs> I love that. If you don't mind, I'm going to borrow it. Um, <laughs> but uh, so that is so that's his syndrome. And then you have a syndrome. I cannot imagine you don't have a syndrome of things that you need a certain <laughs> way. So you're laughing. So, you know, you do. Oh, of course. Uh, of course. As, we as all do. I. We all do. I, I've got my, but I, I really cannot focus and have a conversation unless the table's cleared. And like my husband thinks I'm crazy. Like, like, let's talk. We could clear afterwards, sit down, drink your coffee. Everything's okay. And it's like, no, it's not. And my brain has just shut off. There's stuff on the table. Okay. Um, so everybody has their, their, their things that they have to balance. I think that if we can, in a very, very non-judgmental way, bring that to the surface, what are my things? What are your things? And then what I help couples do is learn to communicate that. So let's say you, Rich is looking for, for, for socks. And he lands up uh, with his beautiful drawing from 16 years ago. So, so you would, if you had really planned this in advance, you would have some kind of word or gesture or touch where it'd be like, oh, there you are. That's okay. That's part of your personality. You just veered off. And now I'm going to be with your permission. I'm now reminding you that we're trying to get out for dinner and there are people waiting for us. And then it's not critical. It's not mean. And it's a healthy kind of communication. And then let's say using my example, my husband would say, I've only got 10 minutes to talk to you. Let's just, you know, either we can take a minute and a half to clean the table and whatever is not done, we'll do afterwards. But let's see what we can do to negotiate this because we both know the other one's craziness. And, and that would be how we do it. But th what I do with my couples is I, I bring to their awareness. And, and also what we always have to be careful of here is that the, the balance of power in the relationship stays even, that one is not over caring for the other and treating the other as in any way less or weaker or any, some kind of invalid or, or, or incapable that, that always, that's, that, that spells doom for any relationship. I love that you said that. And, and uh, mine and Rich's word is bong, by the way, that's just so you know, we, we do have a word and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a universal word in that when you want to, when he wants to change or I want to change uh, direction of a conversation and go completely in a different direction, we use the word when we need to remind you, we there, we have that, but it's developed over time, right? We, we didn't have your books, Abigail, we didn't, <laughs> right? We, we developed all this stuff on our own. And part of it is, uh, for myself, you know, I don't have ADD. That's not that's not or ADHD. That's not in in my story, if you will. So so it's easier for me. I am the schedule keeper. I have the schedule of everything in my head, right? So it's easier for me to be able to stay on track and stay on target, stay on time, stay on schedule. Whereas for him, it's very challenging. So when people have that, when when people have when couples have that sort of one person is is one way and the other person is a completely different way and they are not always compatible, 
right? You're when you're working with these couples, I'm sure that somebody gets defensive. What is your recommendation for when you're starting to work with a couple and there is resistance to even admitting that there could be something that could be improved? Right. And it's usually the non-ADHD spouse that's the most resistant mm-hmm. because they think that they're coming in to fix their spouse. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, no, that's not the way it goes. We are learning how to communicate both of you with your wonderful personalities that are so different than each other's. That's what we're doing here. And they they get very upset about that. Um, and what I do often is meet them separately for a little bit mm-hmm. and uh, help them again, super non-judgmentally figure out what their voices are and why the resistance and what's special about them and why they are feeling criticized as opposed to uh, wanting to seeing this as a growth process. And uh, that that usually is what's works best, I find. I love that you said that because there is this notion of being, you know, again, as soon as we're defensive, as soon as we feel criticized, and this goes for everybody, we put up armor. Instead of being able to stay open, we put up armor and we're like, oh yeah, well, you're not gonna get to say that about me, whatever whatever the thing is. And that has its root causes way back, right? We're probably very young the first time someone made us feel bad about ourselves because I don't think we're born feeling bad about ourselves, you know? We, no, we love ourselves. Right, exactly. And and we also have this, as infants, as newborns, we have this expectation that someone's going to take care of us. We're, we're, we cannot take care of ourselves, right? There's no way an infant can survive by themselves from birth. So so there is this this sort of reliance, if you will, on, on other, on other beings to take care of you. And yet those root causes that you're talking about, they, they take hold somewhere. And so you said, you said something along the lines of there, and I love what you said about it, that, that epidemics are environmental, not genetic. So are people born with these attention issues? And if not, what are those root causes? So there are two kind of born um, root causes. One of them is this instant gratification personality that we're talking about, which is again, a healthy personality and, uh, completely adaptable to regular life. Those are the people who are often going to be later in life, much more of the artists and in the arts in general, much more creative, also entrepreneurs, people. My husband is, is an entrepreneur. He travels everywhere. He's, you know, he could be in three cities in one day and and still be going late at night. Um, yeah, he once, he once said to me at like 1130 at night, I, I said, wow, I'm really tired. And he's like, maybe your iron is low. And I'm like, no, I'm a regular person. (laughs) Um, So those are the people that are out of the box thinkers. They're inventors. They, they, the point is we need those personalities and we need those brains. They are not doing great with school and with follow through, which is why we have, we live in a community where you're going to partner a person like that, just like you and I, who are organized, responsible people are partnered with these amazing ADHD kind of brain type of people. And, and, and we enhance each other. So as so that's one part of it. The other part is that these people um, with an instant gratification personality definitely need to learn to push through on things that are difficult for them. I said, you, you only started doing your work 
when it becomes difficult, when you're having a great time and you're loving putting this puzzle together, you're you're not working. But the second it becomes like boring, I don't want to do this anymore. That's when I I I I bring their attention to their brain and I say that's when your brain just turned on. And if you can push through this, you create a habit and you do that 30 times. Now your brain is stronger. Now you're better prepared for any next challenge that happens. And this is why we want people to face challenges because it strengthens us. The other really, uh, it's not really a genetic cause. That's the only genetic cause of ADHD symptoms. The, the other cause would be being born by C-section or not being nursed or being born preemie because um, that, that would be related to the gut. So it's still a gut issue, but when a child is born by C-section, their gut is being seeded. Um, the microbes of their gut are being seeded by the doctor, the nurse's hands, the, the, the rubber gloves, the air in the hospital room, as opposed to the most amazing gift that they get in the birth canal from their mom. So they start out life uh, in a weakened state and kids like that tend to be a little bit less less vibrant, less healthy. And, uh, but that's something that, that definitely can be dealt with later on with uh, diet change, probiotics and, and other and exposure to animals and nature. Fascinating. I had no idea about that, about the birth canal versus C-section. Uh, interesting. Where, where did you, where, how did you find that out? How did you, where, where did you do the research that found that out for you? Isn't that crazy information? Yeah. Um, so I actually was not nursed as a child. It wasn't, it wasn't in style back then. And uh, I, I had strep like 10 times a winter. I was just a sickly little kid. And I had to do a lot of work on my gut to really get myself to good health. Um, but I, it, it's going down the rabbit hole of understanding gut dysbiosis. That's you eventually bump into that at some point. But this is cold, hard science. I'm not making any of this up. <laughs> it's all it's all well documented in my book. I have all of the sources. Well, speaking of your book, because I could keep you here for the next six hours. This is so fascinating. I would love it if you'd talk a little bit about what prompted the second book and what it's about. So the second book is actually my first love. It's the it's the science and it's the digging up all of the studies and really understanding what's going on. It's a, you know, there, there are people in the world, and I think you and I are similar in this way, that are very curious. You need to know. I need I need to know what's going on around me. I need mm -hmm. to understand it. So mm -hmm. when my, my oldest child is given a prescription for a medication, I want to understand what's going on with that. So I start going down the, that rabbit hole and I, and I start understanding what the medication is. And I'm like, oh, wow, I have to understand where this comes from. What was the idea? What was the first use? What is the history of ADHD? And uh, and and the truth is that that the reason why I didn't include this whole history in my first book, besides for the fact that the first book is 400 pages and probably you know it's like you become into like a war and peace kind of situation, <laughs> um, I I uh, I realized that not everyone needs to know that. Some people are just like, give me the program, tell right. me what's going on. Mm -hmm. I I just want to know what to do, but to quench the thirst of the need to knowers, I, I put out the second book and, uh, it's, it's a joyful book because, uh, not only does it, it make us much more, uh, knowledgeable and, and that's always fantastic. It also really gives us power 
to make the best informed consent decisions for our kids. And I, I frankly think that that's vital and that no matter what's happening with our children, we, we don't want to just trust the authorities. We want to ask all the questions because our kids have only one advocate and that's us. That's it. So we need to be available, aware, looking around, asking, and always, always being curious. And I love, I love hyperhealing. Show me the science. It's really fun. That's awesome. And I, I love the, I love the title because it is, I mean, it's a little tip of the hat to Jerry Maguire, which is great, but it's also looking at it from the perspective of science of what, what are the repeatable experiments that have brought us to this, to this level of knowledge about it. And when I'm, when I'm thinking about it as, as someone who, you know, I have a very creative brain. I love that you said that I was organized because I'm not organized at all. (laughs) Uh, I just have an excellent memory. Right. So, so what, but when I'm looking at this as, as someone who loves ideas and I am also one who would always rather know than not know when, when I'm looking at something like the scientific processes and the and the experiments and and the ideas that you looked at for this what i want to know is how much of all of this can the the regular person use when it comes to the science itself well i think that the regular person who's reading the book is going to be shocked okay i was that that's first of all i I, it's it's an expose and i didn't mean for it to be I, huh. I I just went into it just like, what am I going to find? Let's see what's happening here. And uh, and then I just kept reading and I'm looking at the studies and I'm saying, wow, OK, so the abstract of the study says one thing. But does the study say that? And I did like a real nerd journey and actually read the whole study and it contradicted the headline. And I was like, wow, oh, that doesn't make sense. And then I go to the next one and the next one and all the headlines contradict the findings huh. and and I'm saying oh my god every parent needs to understand this do parents know that when you keep a child on any kind of stimulant medication for three years do they know that it's going to more more than likely stunt their growth do they know that the child is god forbid going to have a one in ten uh chance of developing another psychiatric condition no one knows that And do they know that a child who's been on medication for that many years is not better off than a child who wasn't medicated for those three years? So it's a quick fix. It's not a long-term fix, which means that now I have the power to make a decision. Okay, so if I'm planning on using this for a month, two months, three months, that might be a great choice. But if I'm relying on this as my child's treatment I am not making the right choice at all. I'm being deceived because the child who's been on medication for three years is doing more poorly than the child who hasn't been. So therefore, this gives me so much knowledge and ability to be flexible in my conversations with teachers and my decision making. And I think we we must do that. Yeah. 
Uh, that's fascinating. I didn't know that. And it's interesting, though. I have heard that there are certain medications for for these uh, for these symptoms you that you get used to them and you have to increase the dosage because you get used to them, which I which I think is sort of talking in the same vein about what you what you just said. And yet when when we're in the moment, when we have a schoolroom of 35 kids and we have kids who have some of these issues, some of these symptoms, uh, official diagnoses or whatever, you know, whatever the root cause is, you're a teacher, you've got 35 kids. How do you handle if some of them have this shiny, pretty thing syndrome, if some of them have these, I, I need instant gratification or I'm going to run around the room like crazy. What do you do to manage all of that all at once? Right. So I hear this a lot and, uh, and I, I teach teachers. So this is a dialogue that, that comes up very often um, where the teachers will say, ah, I hear it. Okay. So there's nothing wrong with the child's brain and we've figured out what's going on. And, but I'm a teacher. I have 35 students in the class. What do you want me to do? I say, okay. So let's say the child had a, a hand that was just had this trigger thing going on. It was always smacking the kid next to them. You have 35 students in the class. What do, what do you expect me to do? You're not going to cut off the kid's hands, right? You know, that that's like you can't uh, impose the discomfort that you're having on the body of the child. So therefore, I, I don't leave a teacher hanging. I give the teacher the full program. There's a lot you can do, and medication might have a place in that. I've medicated my own children, um, and and medication does, and for that reason, that the teachers just were like, "Listen, your kid can't be in the classroom for this." And finally, I was like, "Okay, how long do you medicate a child because the teacher is going to lose their mind?" And then, when do you say stop? What's best for my kid? I think saying stop, what's best for my kid, happens to come ha must come way earlier than is coming now. And, and we're definitely sacrificing a lot of good years of our child's lives to the, the greater good of the classroom. That doesn't mean your kid could blow up the classroom, which is why I wrote the first book so that the teacher and the parent could have the guide to be able to figure out what to do with that child. And I don't think that the teacher has to come up with all the solutions. I, I have a full chapter actually just focused on building the bridge between school and home. And I tell parents, you're the teacher is your advocate. The teacher is your partner. Treat her with respect or him with respect. And you offer programs. Don't just say good luck to you because the teacher will fall on her face. It's too hard a job. So work together and this is what you can do. And I give a lot of really, really hands-on solutions. I myself am a classroom teacher. And uh, and yeah, we, we, we did great. These kids and I did really, really well together. It's it is interesting to me this notion, uh, and I'm going to give you a personal example. So I do I go in and I teach in schools. I teach environmental science, and I go in and I teach in schools and talk about really cool innovation in tech, and all of that having to do with the earth and and our environment. And I was in a classroom, and there was an autistic child in the classroom, nonverbal, and she. This was an integrated school district, which means that kids of all sorts are in the room. And she right. was obviously not happy to be there because her and her way of showing her displeasure was screaming at the top of her lungs for 35 minutes 
screaming wow. nonstop for 35 minutes. And the thing is, legally, her she had a one-on-one caregiver and her caregiver said, I'm sorry, I can't do anything because I'm not legally allowed to take her out of the classroom. She is required to be in the classroom. Now, in that moment, the the problem here is that there's no way to reach this child. She's nonverbal. She just knew that she didn't want to be there. And her way of saying that was screaming like like she was being eviscerated let's call it what it is right and so what what ended up happening is the other 34 kids and I sat down and did nothing for that full 35 minutes and finally the I think the the teacher called the principal and the principal came in and made the decision but in the meantime I was only there for one hour so these kids got 25 minutes of this presentation that would have that should have been an hour because 35 minutes of it was taken up by a child being so disruptive so in that moment and i'm not saying kids who have you know we'll call it regular attention issues um i'm not saying that they're that disruptive but they can be right and so so that's kind of what i'm talking about in that instance you know there was nothing we could do she wouldn't stop screaming and we're in a situation where we're having to deal with this onslaught of 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 sound that makes it impossible to run the classroom it was just not possible so so that's the kind of thing i'm talking about and i'm not saying you know and i've been in classrooms with kids who have adhd running around the classroom just running just the entire time right that they and obviously they need more time outside and i know that's probably what you'd say in answer to that and still we have this responsibility to teach all the kids not just the ones who and to reach all the kids, not just the ones who have some of these attention issues. What are your thoughts on stuff like that? How do we as adults address those issues along the full classroom? Well, first of all, that's a horrible story. (laughs) Really awful. And it just strengthens what I said before, which is that a lot of the problem is a clash between a child, I said a healthy child, but this in, in this case, if the if the child was on the spectrum, then obviously she was dealing with something that is not very healthy, unfortunately, but and their environment, because the environment that that child was placed in was causing her so much stress and mm-hmm. so much harm that she had no other way to respond. Mm-hmm. And a child wants to respond well. When a child is responding that way, that means she just doesn't have a choice. And the fact is that that everyone's hands were tied over some kind of crazy rule that she has a personal teacher sitting next to her who cannot take her out of the room and have her do some exercise in in the hallway or in the or or on the field outside of the school building. So when you ask me about that, I say the rule is crazy. There's no reason why a child should not be allowed to, with an adult by her side, go get some air and find something that's more appropriate for her. You take someone with that with has that has a challenge, and you stick them in a situation that's so inappropriate. There's no way to resolve that. No, mm-hmm. and, and medicating her so that she's quiet. And then she just suffers in silence is no way to go at it either. The, 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 problem, the illness here is in the rules of the school, not with the, the child. And it's a real shame that everyone else had to pay a price for it because the school system is working against the needs and the best interests of the students. And, and that, that sort of thing really breaks my heart. 
Yeah, it's most of the time with uh, in a classroom when you have kids, uh, kid, no kid should be running around the classroom. And that's why I work with teachers, because we do an incredible amount of discipline training the first two weeks of the school year so that we build trust with these children. And uh, and these kids and you see it in the adults as well. I, I'm sure you, you see it with your husband. I see it with mine and my own children is that they need predictability. They need to know that things are in order. They need to know where they can find things. So as a teacher going into a classroom where you know that at least five of your students are going to be exhibiting these symptoms, do your homework. There are ways to create a calm disciplinary environment where everybody flourishes. My students did not run around the classroom, but every time they asked a question or answered a question, they were honored with the right to stand up uh, in order to express themselves. So they stood and they and they sat all the time. And when they finished an assignment in the classroom and they'd race through it because they wanted to then get up and go get and do something in the enrichment corner, that was a privilege that they got, or they got to stand up next to their desk if they sat if they stood quietly privilege with responsibility so there's all there's so much one can do that does not involve harming the child and the rest of the classroom could flourish I love that. I think that's phenomenal. And and it, it is interesting to me when we're talking about these notions you're giving it's it's a it's a good solid reward system which i think is great and yet when it's difficult for these children and again i could keep you here for the next six months when 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 it's difficult for these children you said something earlier that that kind of made me go ha huh, i need to ask about this you said that they need to learn how to push through when things get when their brains turn on and things get difficult how do they do that how does a child or or even an adult who has add or adh uh how how do they learn how to push through those times when something gets boring or those times when, because i i've seen people i know who have add or adhd just go yeah that got i just lost it i couldn't i disappeared for me i had to go on to something else and so what do you do then how do you learn to push through the boredom or the lack of focus how do you what do you need to do is it a reward system like the classroom well, there's a couple of things. First of all, awareness that that's your problem. This is a, okay, I can work for 20 minutes and then I fizzle out and I'm gone. Like getting a full awareness of what your individual problem would be. So as a classroom teacher, I would say, okay, this student, um, uh, Sam say, he can work for 15 minutes and then I lose him. And so I would say to him, Sam, you know, for the first week you get 15 minutes of work you do that really well, you're fully rewarded for it. And within the classroom, we have either compliments, we have a token system, we have something that the teacher, again, has to prepare in advance so that there is a reward system for all of the students in the class and that they'd much rather choose to behave well than choose to behave poorly. Just like that mom who is going to respond to her kid when they're whining, very often teachers respond to their students when they act out. So if we as teachers have a little bit of self-control and wisdom and we introduce a system where the students get rewarded for their good behavior loudly, enthusiastically with with uh, with walking up to that student and deliberately letting that student know how pleased you are, then the students catch on and they're like, oh, in this classroom, 
being listening doing the right thing asking a good question being thoughtful is the way to go and very quickly they 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 pick up on that and the, and you don't need as many discipline tactics if that's your if that's the environment in your classroom but back to the focus so we'd start with a with with the sam to being able to focus for 15 minutes and do his work well the first week he's going to get full credit for those 15 minutes and then he's going to be allowed to go to the enrichment corner or walk on the figure eight that's at the back of the classroom he's going to be allowed to do something but i'm going to say to him next week we're adding five minutes to that and ah. that's your work and uh -huh. we slowly build up but we mm -hmm. do that along with something physical and and this is how everybody understands it better and and it's very uh, strengthening let's say uh, if i asked you now how long could you run you know just just go ahead and do a sprint or a comfortable jog <laughs> how long <would> it <laughs> yeah i'm the wrong person to ask that uh i i have bad knees and bad ankles so i could maybe do two blocks before i started limping so okay uh, bike ride i could bike ride for many miles there <laughs> for you oh my god i i way prefer a run to a bike ride anyhow um so most people let's say you know if, if i say that to a bunch of women who are not in fantastic shape they're not going to the gym all the time most of them will say between five and seven minutes and then mm -hmm. i and i say great that's your starting point just right. like the kid in the classroom now you're going what we're going to do is a training where you're going to run the first week seven minutes every every other day but next week we're adding four minutes to that. And that's when you turn on your brain because that push of that extra two, three minutes is all brain work. And if you can do that with your physical activity, then you're also going to be paralleling it in your mental activity in the classroom. So th that that's the way we work on it. And it's it's really quite effective and anybody can do it. Don't expect yourself to go from zero to 100 expect yourself to go from 15 to 17 and then you'll make it and that's what really strengthens the brain and actually creates new neurotransmitters i love that you said that especially because like one of the things i tell my clients all the time is it's incremental progress and that you have to start where you are you know that's that's so important to to go this is where i am today and it it's 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 not what you do want, what you don't want, it's just where you are. And that's so important for us to remember as beings on the planet, we have all of these, but I want it to be this, or I or I, I feel bad that it's not that, as opposed to just accepting this is where I am today. You know, I know, for example, in running, my uh, my ability to run is curtailed because I have no, no um, I, I have no ligaments in my knees. I have no cartilage okay. in my knees, none. Yeah, it's just bad. And I have torn meniscus all sorts of stuff what back when i used to think i could run i injured myself badly and so so i know this as one of my challenges so if somebody said to me you need to run a mile i'd be like well kill me now so it <laughs> takes it takes knowing that right and so when yeah. you're working with people and you're saying you have to start where you are you also have to accept that this is where you are right you have to yeah. get to a place of peace about it do you have any ideas on how someone would do that I'll tell you that is one of the more challenging steps, surprisingly, mm -hmm. where uh, just just yesterday I got a uh, a message from from a client who said, you know, I'm, I'm making some really, really nice progress and I'm just so disappointed at how long it mm -hmm. took for me to get here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, and I say, wow, that is so tragic mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I'm making such nice progress 
should be followed with I'm awesome. Right. Yay. But it's right. Not. It's not. It's it's followed with I was supposed to be perfect. I failed myself and my voices and every and this and this imaginary audience that I have. And uh and I I feel bad about myself. So the enemy of this entire process is needing to be perfect. And having I was supposed to be there. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I look at my clients and I say, who says? Right. Says, right. Says who that you were supposed to be there? Who wrote the script? You're supposed to be here because that's where you are. Right. Now, let's see where you'd like to be tomorrow and let's make it reasonable so you could actually do it. And and that's that's something that requires a lot of conversation, a lot of 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 getting rid of perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Progress, not perfection. I think that that is exactly to me the thing that I it's what I say to my clients. And it's so important because self-judgment is death. It is. It's oh, yeah. it, it, it keeps you from making progress. And sometimes you won't make progress for a, a little while. Sometimes you plateau and staying patient with yourself is key there so that you can then make progress again when you're ready to make progress. And I think we have to be I, I, I call it giving yourself grace and space. You know, you, you, you can be you can have that space for yourself to just kind of go, I'm OK right where I am. And that's OK. And 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 we we judge ourselves very harshly. So I really appreciate you saying that. Uh, I I think that you and I could keep talking about this forever, but I know you have an evening to get back to. So I would love it, Avigail, if you would take a minute and just sort of talk a little bit. Uh, we You didn't mention before about when exactly the book's going to come out uh, so that you so that people who are interested in knowing about Show Me the Science when it comes to hyperhealing, when the book's going to come out. And also, where can people find you if they're more interested in finding out what you do? Well, the best way to get to me would be through my website, which is hyperhealing.org. And you can write to me directly there. I always respond. And uh, also, I have a lot of free resources that are downloadable on the website. And uh, my books, uh, my first book, The First Hyperhealing, is already available on Amazon for the last year. The new book is going to be available for pre-order in mid-September. And uh, it's going to be available for purchase in uh, mid to late October. My goal is the 18th of October and uh, here's hoping. Right. Um, I'm really <laughs> Fingers excited crossed. about it. <laughs> exactly. That's awesome. Avigail, thank you so much for joining me. This, this is, it's a conversation that I love. I loved speaking with you. You're so thoughtful and articulate, which is wonderful, but it's also a conversation that I think many of us benefited from listening to this because so many of us are walking around with attention issues and don't even realize it. So it's wonderful that you took the time. Thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And by the way, I love your pauses. It's one of my favorite <laughs> things about your your podcast. Oh, wow. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's I feel like I need to take the time. So I should take the time. Uh, and I'm super grateful you're going to come right back. We're going to do the bonus episode so that people can learn a little bit more about your favorites. Thank you for doing that in advance. But remember, I ask always one last question. And that question is, if you had an airplane, environmentally friendly, of course, that could skywrite anything for the whole world to see, what would you say? I think our generation needs to hear, have compassion for yourself. And I agree. That's a that's a lovely, self-compassion is a beautiful thing. Uh, awesome, Avigail, thank you so much. We're gonna be back for 
in just a second with the bonus episode. But until then, this is Isolde Trachtenberg with the Innovative Mindset podcast, reminding you that Die by the Sword is out. If you're interested in it, you know where to find it. All the stuff is in the show notes. How to get in touch with Avigail is also in the show notes. You can find her on LinkedIn, on Facebook, YouTube, uh, all sorts of places, Instagram, but also at hyperhealing.org. Until next time, this is Isolde Trachtenberg again, reminding you to be bold, be creative, and most of all, be kind. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you being here. Please subscribe to the podcast if you're new, and it would mean the world to me if you told a friend about it. Today's episode was produced by Isolde Trachtenberg and is copyright 2022. As always, please remember this is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Past performance does not guarantee future results, although we can always hope. Until next time, remember to be bold, be creative, and most of all, be kind. Thank you.